Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Changing Reels, the podcast hosted on the Modern Superior Network that focuses on underseen or underappreciated movies with an emphasis on diversity in front of and behind the camera. For Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And this week we have a interesting trio of Middle Eastern-influenced movies, both in our shorts and our feature film pick of the week, uh, courtesy of Courtney. As we, of course, go through those, we always like hearing from you, our listeners. So if there's anything that you find interesting as we discuss these various Middle Eastern-influenced picks, we would love to hear from you. We're going to include links to our Twitter, Gmail, and then, of course, if you leave a comment here at the Modern Superior website or anywhere else, really, we would love to read them. That bit of business aside, Courtney, I understand it's been a boisterous few days for you. So how are you hanging in there? Not too bad. I mean, it's it's been busy. And I know by the time this goes up, it'll be just after the Christmas break. So December has been a very busy month, but we're getting through it. For our listeners who are interested in this sort of thing, Courtney and his daughter both just celebrated another full solar rotation, so happy birthday to both you and your daughter. Yeah, thank you. For me, it's just an, another year, but for her, it was the, the first birthday, so it was a big, big celebration. The big blossoming brouhaha. With that bit of happiness now out of the way, we're going to launch into our two shorts, which we like to discuss at the beginning of each episode before we talk about our feature film. Uh, so, Courtney, why don't you go ahead and tell me a bit about your short and what led you to that today? The short that I picked is entitled In Her Place, and it was directed by Kevin Hamid- Hamidani. Excuse me if I mispronounce any of the names on today's episodes. I'm going to try my best to uh, to get it right on, but it's going to be a little difficult. The reason I picked this one is because since our feature film was an Iranian film, and I have my own personal interest in terms of expanding my knowledge of Iranian cinema, I went looking for shorts specifically that dealt with the Iranian culture. And um, I came across this one, and I was really, really floored by it. It stars Sheila Van, who some of our listeners may know as the lead from Anna Lily Amirpour's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. She was the main vampire in that. So in this film, she plays Nazi, a young woman who got caught fooling around with her boyfriend and is literally being reprimanded by her overbearing father. Throughout the film, you're watching... Nazi and her sister Seema as they prepare for the arrival of an Iranian American who who was a widower and he's coming back to basically get a new bride and that bride being Nazi. As the film progresses though, things happen and it ends on a really, for me at least, a really shocking and powerful note. And I'll leave it there for now and then we can dive into it a bit more. I, I'm still trying to figure out where I fell on this because of the three things we watched for today, In Her Place was definitely the most striking as far as the visuals and the shots were concerned. Like there was a lot of harshly contrasted lighting throughout In Her Place, especially in those closing moments, which you're kind of alluding to. And It was interesting for me because as striking as the lighting was and how harsh some of the subject matter really was, it was kind of difficult for me to get a grasp on the relationships as to who means who to what. It was just hard for me to to figure out. You have that immediately 
gripping opening moments where Nazi comes into her room with Seema and they're kind of dancing around in their conversation what Nazi is in trouble for, which was, you know, sleeping with her boyfriend. And it's a running theme throughout most of the Iranian movies that I've watched that even in closed quarters, you have to be careful what you're saying because you don't know who might be listening, even if it's a loved one, even if it's someone who you've had no reason to like suspect or lose trust in earlier. So in those moments with Nazi and Seema, I really dug those because it was the two of them kind of navigating that fraught minefield. It was when we started switching in with Ali, who was Nazi's suitor, I guess. Maybe this would be like the Iranian version of a, a gentleman caller. I suppose. And then Hassan, their father, and the relationships there were a lot less clear. Cause when we first saw Ali, I actually thought that that was their father as opposed to Hassan, who makes a himself violently known not to Nazi later on in the little short. So it started off great. And then I kind of just lost my connection point as the different threads started to get close together. But it's so strong when it's just Nazi or it's Nazi and Seema. And then it was the other bits that I kind of got detached from, even if I appreciated the craft. See, that's interesting because I didn't get the relationships confused at all. For me, it was fairly straightforward up until you get to the end. And I liked that how they introduced Ali as like the grieving widower who's coming back to the, his homeland to, to meet his new bride. And for the majority of the short, we assume that is Nazi. And even when he meets Nazi, he's charmed by her feistiness. She's a very strong woman who does not want to follow conventions and there's that whole conflict between her and her father and her father is basically chastising her for quote-unquote shaming the family even though she's probably just following her own heart so i followed the entire story well it was just when they threw that little twist at the end and you know i'm gonna dive into it so if, listeners if you want to take a moment pause go to modern superior check out the short and then come back that's perfectly fine but when you get back to America and you think that he, that Ali and Nazir are going to basically set up a life together and you realize that at the last minute the father cut a side deal and now it's the younger sister Seema, the inexperienced one, who has to take Nazi's place. I did not see that coming at all. And hmm, because to me that's where some of the, the confusion, I guess, with the, the relationship issues kind of just the way that they were edited together um with Ali at the graveside and so on it it seemed to be setting up just through the visual storytelling going from Nazi and Sima to Ali this kind of fractured family dynamic only in this case as you said Ali turns out to be the man that Sima goes home with and looking at it backwards you know Hindsight being 2020, Nazi trying to prepare Seema for this life that she doesn't necessarily want to give advice into and that she doesn't want to 
have to endure herself. It just highlights again just the strength of, of those conversations that Nazi was having with Seema versus kind of the, I don't know, the, just the blunt violence of Hassan. And I do enjoy when you discussed Ali and, and how he's kind of impressed by Nazi's feistiness. That was another good dynamic in the brief instance that we got it in, because Hassan is almost repulsed by Nazi's confidence. Ali, he's kind of attracted to it. There's that great moment where Nazi notices that Ali wears a wedding band, even if he's not wearing it at that moment. He still has the tan line and so on. And even though she kind of oversteps her bounds, Ali reacts with bemusement. Just kind of looking at it broad view, there's a lot of paternalistic issues at play, again, in a lot of the Iranian movies that I've seen. I think this will tie in also really strongly with the unseen paternalistic pressures in our feature film when we get to that. So I guess I, as I watched it, I was expecting some kind of broken family dynamic where those paternalistic pressures, partly society-based, partly the dynamic that's already going on in the family, disrupting each other versus that twist that we get at the end and then just the brief flashes of Hassan. So I don't know. I, I do my best to try and evaluate a movie by what it is not what i wish it to be and i understand by also bringing a paternalism aspect that i'm <laughs> i'm edging dangerously close to the what i wish it to be but considering the widower ali and then just the, the marriage dynamic that was already in place there and then hassan i, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that i, I wish it was playing off that a little more but 60% of an extremely effective short is better than, I don't know, 10%. And even if I wasn't completely sold on the rest of it, in hindsight, I'd get a bit more of what it was going for. Oh, that's completely understandable. I mean, it's it's one of those that I think people are going to walk away with different impressions of it, especially I know there was a part where I had a inkling that it might even go the whole taming of the shrew route when Ali and Nazi first meet. And I was kind of glad it didn't go that way. You know, there was a, there was a lot of different roles that this film could have taken. And I think I was also just struck by the turn at the end and the look on Seema's face when, you know, she's going to have her first intimate encounter with Ali and she's trying to put on a brave face, but you could see the fear, the Pain. Like there was so much just captured in that one moment, and I think that really, really struck me. But like, I completely see where you are coming from and why you wouldn't be as as wild with it. And I would say that it's almost a, for me a good segue into your short because I kind of had your reaction when watching your short this week. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to be a, a jumbled mess in terms of the uh, quality reception of one another's shorts this week, it seems. Exactly. <laughs> so, and actually I was fully anticipating it. The short I selected was I Feel Stupid. When you discussed how Sheila Vand who played the girl and a girl walks home alone at night. I kind of had to make some quick connections in my brain because I was like, wow, my short and your short and then this movie have quite a few intersecting threads I wasn't immediately <laughs> aware of when I selected it. But 
I feel stupid. It's a sort of lazy day drama. It's the kind that you usually see set in the South where heat and hormones start mixing, but in a very low-key, simmering sort of way than allowing things to blow up in a gigantic showdown or anything like that. But it's basically three acquaintances, and the way that they all treat each other. It's not entirely clear that they're actually friends. They're just neighborhood folks who happen to hang around with each other. There's a lean who is basically our protagonist in the sense that we spend the most time with her, but really the dynamic between the three is what takes center stage. We just happen to spend most of our time with lean. Um, Amber, who is slightly older and has come back to the neighborhood to well, it's not entirely clear. She she doesn't seem to want to be there. So whatever it is that she's doing back in the neighborhood most likely has nothing to do with her unseen family. And then Robbie, who is this gawky boy who hangs around Lean and Amber sees right through in a very cruel way and taunts Robbie to try and kind of make a move on Lean. So I'm not surprised that you were... A little iffy on this, especially after our discussion on Sofia Coppola's Bling Ring a few weeks back, because there's a certain sort of almost lazy entitlement through the characters, and there's one scene veering towards uncomfortable that I think goes back around to being charming when Amber and Lean see a man, well, sorry, just a uh, a boy who is working in one of those thankless sign-dancing jobs and I think a pig costume. Yeah, if it was a pig outfit. Yeah, pig outfit. Amber wants to go strike a conversation with the boy and kind of flirt with him. And after he takes his pig head off, he's a black boy. So Amber, again, kind of sees through some of Lean's insecurities and says, well, you don't want to do this just because he's black. And Lean, of course, says no, but there's really no other excuse. And that that I could see have been playing off in a really rough fashion. And I like that when they do go up and talk to the boy, that we get different versions of each person's true self, even if it seems fake, like with Amber and Lean's case. And that kind of sincerity in seeming artificiality, we discussed a lot with the bling ring. And I thought it worked here, but... I'm curious if that is similar to kind of some of the issues you had with Bling Ring or if I'm off base and you hate this with a fiery passion for untold other reasons, which you will now spill onto me passionately. I mean, it wasn't so much the Bling Ring effect, although now that you mentioned, I'm like, oh, like maybe that was part of it. But I think for me, this film reminded me a lot of a film that um, hopefully we're going to discuss on this show, Xavier Dolan's uh, Heartbeats where Robbie and Lean, as awkward as they are, they are both clearly attracted to Amber. And I like the fact that Amber was the kind of sees through everyone and tell like it is. That stuff didn't bother me. I think it was just, since Lean is the protagonist, I kind of, looking for a little more out of her. Like It felt like the characters were supposed to be extremely weird and awkward, but to me, they were fairly normal i mean the the weirdest thing about lean is outside of i guess some of her social awkwardness is the fact that she owns a lot of birds so she takes care of a lot of birds for robbie it's he likes to play um, grand theft auto like he was okay that's 
to me, they were just normal kids. So it didn't really seem that awkward. And I understand that they're trying to navigate their sexuality, but I don't know. I just, I walked away thinking, you know, the short itself was, is okay. The story was, but it, it didn't really grab me. And I found it interesting that you picked the, the pig moment as the most uncomfortable because I, I thought you would have gone towards the scene with Amber and Robbie where Amber knows that Robbie likes lean and that Robbie is most likely a virgin and tries to call him out on it. And there's that scene where she says that only virgins have uh, no pubic hair or something like that. So they go into the little <laughs> shed yeah. and you know, he's trying to prove his manliness. And clearly the after effects from that moment, you see that he's running away embarrassed and lean tries to put on a brave ha 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 face. But you could also tell that she's feeling kind of bad. For me, that was the most awkward moment. But I, and I think that more spoke to the quirky nature that the film was trying to go to. I just didn't think it was as quirky as I think the, the writing tried to make it to be. I don't think quirk is the aim here. It's more just discomfort and then the characters navigating their discomfort, which was more why I had settled on the pig dude scene as one of the more enlightening moments in terms of Amber's ability to pick out what she needs to do in a, a social situation to quickly become the main person for it. The moment at the end when Robbie and Amber go into the shed and Amber basically humiliates Robbie, it wasn't awkward, I suppose, in the subject matter sense. To me, at that part, it felt like an honest look at kids trying to figure out their sexuality. That's why I didn't really see any of this as quirky, just aggressive and then uncertain at points. You're right to focus on Robbie and Lean's attraction to Amber and then Lean's kind of semi-attraction to Robbie as well, because you have those really awkward moments. Again, more awkward than quirky where Robbie is obsessed with showing Amber and Lean this sex scene that you can find in Grand Theft Auto. And if there's a more innocent yet weird way for a barely adolescent teen boy to try and overcome his shyness using a video game like that, I haven't seen it, at least in recent memory. So the moment when Amber laughs at Robbie at the end, it just seems more like a natural culmination of everything. Lean wanting to seem disaffected in the way that Amber is. Robbie simultaneously wanting to prove his manliness to lean while also doesn't want his manliness or lack thereof questioned by Amber and then the, the kind of embarrassing fallout from that. So it just seemed more slice of life than any kind of cork fest like the awful, awful me and Earl and the dying girl or any other of those kind of indie movies. I'm not even getting into that. I'm one of the few that enjoyed me and Earl and the Dying Girl. For, Ooh, boy. <laughs> dis, despite despite the uh, the blatant pull at your heartstring moments and some blatantly offensive moments, I still walked away uh, enjoying that film. But that's a discussion for another day. Yes. Uh, I, I will say that, as odd as it may sound, I think I would have appreciated this film more if it was a feature. Then you could really dive into these characters a bit more and expand. Like I liked that the film kind of shows lean's fakeness in terms of how she really tries to become amber to impress amber i thought that was kind of interesting and i would love to have seen that kind of developed further i think that's probably what it was like this the fact that with the, the, the brief running time that this film has it establishes everything it would just it 
didn't capture my attention the way it might have if we had more time to spend with these characters. I'm glad that you brought that up, actually, because when I was watching I Feel Stupid, I was reminded a lot of David Gordon Green's earliest movies, like George Washington and especially all the real girls. David Gordon Green is a beautifully optimistic filmmaker slash shakily quality stoner comedy king now. But when he is in optimistic poetic mode, there's few people who can touch the southern decaying beauty like he can. And I Feel Stupid reminded me as a more pessimistic version of that, where people are trying to figure themselves out, not unlike all the real girls, that dreamy haze that adolescence sometimes gives us, or when we're looking back on it, has been pushed aside for those awkward confrontations and that semi-fake, semi-authentic approach that the kids take. So I get what you're saying there. I, I think that there is enough muscle in I Feel Stupid that it could have worked as a feature length. The director, Melina Pastorich, she's gone on to do quite a few shorts and is working on a documentary right now. So I'd be curious to see how she expanded on this and other shorts and to bring it back to the A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which I know we've already got it on our list, but I think that this is like spiritually obligating us to talk about it soon now because Anna Lily Amirpour who wrote and directed A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night also wrote I Feel Stupid and there's that sort of alienation of being a symbol in I Feel Stupid that is pushed to an amazing degree in A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night so yeah I think both the director uh, Melina Pastorich and then of course Anna Lily Amirpour worked better when they had more time to use so I, I see where you're coming from man yeah it's just one of those and again because I watched A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night first and seeing what Amirpour can do with a script and I just felt given more time to flesh it out and I think I don't know if this was like a student film that they made or, or what but just given more time it might have turned into something truly special for me at least <laughs> good qualifier there <laughs> and on that note we're going to take a quick break to change some reels and then we will be back to talk about Asghar Farhadi's 2006 movie just now getting a wide release here in 2016 Fireworks Wednesday Welcome back, everybody. We are going to be talking today about Fireworks Wednesday, the 2006 movie from Iranian Wunderking director Asghar Farhadi that is only now receiving a release here in the States and kind of limited publication and same with Canada. The movie centers around the eponymous Fireworks Wednesday, a holiday which provides a lot of background noise throughout the movie as fireworks are going off all day and all night. It's essentially three different sets of relationships that are coming into 
conflict with one another. There is a young woman who is trying to make some money before her marriage. Her name is Ruhi, played by Terana Aladusti. And apologies again, I know Courtney said this earlier, if we're butchering some pronunciations here, but we're going to try and get them as best we can because everyone deserves their super credit here. But she is a young woman who's just trying to earn some money before her wedding. So she takes a job at the home of uh, Mojde, who is played by Hidia Terrani, and she is the wife of Mortiza, played by Hamid Farakhnezad. And they are having some extreme marital difficulties. Uh, Mojda feels that Mortiza is stepping out, potentially with the salon owner next door, who is the third point of this triangle. Her name is Simin, played by Pantia Bahram, who is facing her own set of cultural pressures because she is a divorced woman living alone, running her own business in the heavily religious and, as I alluded to earlier, um, paternalistic system in Iran. There's a lot to dig into here because I... I know that usually we save this sort of adulation during various emotional peaks, but I loved this. And I want to know, Courtney, Ashkar Farhadi, he is clearly one of the global talents, but why did you want to talk about this? Two parts. As I alluded to earlier, Iranian cinema is, you know, woefully a huge blind spot for me, even even though I'm a you know a big cinephile. And last year I read a book on Farhadi, written by a local film critic, Tina Hassania. And the book is entitled Asgar Farhadi, Life and Cinema. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes because I highly recommend anyone who's remotely interested in the director or Iranian cinema give that book a read and it was because it's great. And after reading that book, I had decided that once my daughter was born at the end of the year, I was going to take that time while I'm at home to really dive into the works of Farhadi and also Iranian cinema. Because pretty much up until this point, I had only seen A Separation, the Oscar-winning film of his. Of course, anyone who has one child, let alone two, will know you don't really have that much free time, especially <laughs> with a newborn. So I didn't get a chance to delve into that. And this year, since I'm a member of the Online Film Critics Society, the end of the year is like the award season time where we have to start deciding what we're going to vote for. And you start getting a whole bunch of links and DVDs showing up for various films. And a link came in for Fireworks Wednesday. And that was one of the, the catalysts to, to kind of push me to get back into Farhadi and also just dive into Iranian cinema. So when the opportunity presented itself, I said, you know what, we got to talk about it on this show. And I'm, I'm glad I chose it because for a first time watch, I'm with you. I, I love this film. I thought it was really well done. The way how it juxtaposes Ruhi's going to get married and that kind of joyful jubilation that you have with a couple who have been married for some time and just like their home their marriage has been kind of cluttered with various factors and especially within that society and how Maretza 
treats his wife throughout this film, I just thought was really fascinating. And as you said, there's there's a lot to discuss here, but it's just a wonderful film. Yeah, and before we dive in a bit further on the movie, we can do this as a uh, Changing Reels semi-book club edition, because I, too, have been trying to educate myself on Iranian movies and kind of Middle Eastern directors in general. And I read uh, an excellent book called Unaccented Cinema, Exilic and Diasporic Filmmaking by Hamid Nafisi. So that is the Andrew Seal book for the podcast. I don't know if we'll have a lot of those moving forward, but strike while the iron's hot. And I'm glad that you mentioned the clutter of Fireworks Wednesday, because there is so much messiness that it sometimes felt like the movie was going to careen off, because you have the constant pressure of the fireworks going off outside the entire movie. There's no reprieve from that. Considering America's particularly vile foreign stance and how we've taught kids there to fear clear skies, that was a really interesting way that Farhadi was able to integrate some of that tension into what is otherwise uh, an innocuous religious event, which should be joyful fireworks going off and instead here it clutters up our audio senses as everyone is fighting and lying and whispering to each other and it also really influenced the amazing design of the apartment that Majda and Mortiza share when Ruhi comes in. Mojda and Mortiza are from a slightly higher class family. They, it looks like they'd be like upper middle class, lower upper class, something like that. Despite that, their home almost looks like a war zone. There are a lot of nice accoutrements, but there are plastic tarps thrown over everything. There's little rhyme or reason as to how everything is set up. And even their kid's room, uh, who has, you know, some nice things in there as well. When you go in, everything looks so cramped. With their child, their son, who has a few pivotal emotional moments in Fireworks Wednesday, that cramped emotional space is reflected again, in his living room. So in a way, Fireworks Wednesday is extremely bare in its visuals and its sound design as to the messy situation we're going to find ourselves in with these people over the next hour and 40 minutes or so. I kept thinking, especially with all the fireworks going off, like how combustible this this marriage is. That, you know, every, ah, every aspect. Every aspect, of it. <laughs> Every aspect of it, I just felt like I'm looking at them in the house, I'm thinking one left cigarette or something, and that whole house is ablaze. Just like just so much clutter and then with the tension going on with theirs. So how he managed to capture that. And then if you think about it, too, it's interesting because for them, the, the messiness and tight spaces is almost self-imposed whereas for Ruhi we get a few moments like there's that great scene near the beginning where she tries on her wedding dress and she can only look at it in a small compact mirror but she has for her it's, it's such a joy whereas she takes the little things in life and the small space and makes the best of it whereas these guys in theory have ample space are supposed to quote unquote have a good life and they're just in hell very much a hell as other people sort of situation, only in this case it's hell is my husband and hell is my wife, which is a cynical approach, but it also ends up being the approach that is most applicable to Fireworks Wednesday. And the, I like the contrast between the relationships. At the end of the day, 
because this movie does take place basically over a 12-hour-ish period. The future does not look bright for Moshe and Mortiza. And the way that gets resolved is actually one of the few, possibly the only negative I have about this. But sticking with the positive for now, the relationship doesn't look like it's going to be going anywhere. And those early scenes where Ruhi, as you say, is finding joy in those tiny moments, that's also reflected in the brief moments that we get with her and her husband-to-be. One of the through lines that fascinated me in Fireworks Wednesday, and it also did in a separation in a different way, is the way information is employed as a weapon. Ruhi at the end is being much more honest with her husband-to-be than Mortiza is about basically anything that happens in Fireworks Wednesday. But even that's messy, because Mojda, her suspicions, whether they're right or not, they're really hurting their child. And I think it's about halfway through that we start getting more of Mortiza's perspective. Uh, And it's also when the sun is brought into the picture a little more that we get a slight glimpse of how Mortiza probably feels in a certain sense justified in being so frustrated with Mojda. Again, the climax, or I suppose the resolution of all this, tempers how insightful and excellent those moments are. But... Mojda's suspicions and her paranoia, they're not helped by, and again, I hate you for coming up with something so perfect, the combustible environment where everything could go up in flames all at once. And it's gotten to the point where her family, when they come in to help, they can't really talk to her directly about this stuff. They have to do it in whispers, in corners where they think that no one can hear. I admire the writing that went into Ruhi because she never navigates so many different layers of truth and lying, different relationships, while doing her best to keep the peace but also stay out of it as much as she can. So the morals in Fireworks Wednesday, they're extremely fluid, and the only thing that keeps it for me from being as equal to a separation is that there does end up being a specific good and a specific bad that does take place in Fireworks Wednesday. But all of the relationships, and this is even before we get Simon into the mix, who has her own sort of bemused charm and kind of lighthearted look at everything that's going on, which again is reflected in the design of her salon, which is more open and free, and the mirrors and the decorations make it look a lot more inviting. The way the visuals tied in with the family relationships and then the set designs and then the complex navigation of truth and lies with the information as a weapon on a writing standpoint is fantastic. And then when you take in the set design and everything, it, it's brilliant. I loved how the film established Mosda, you know, at, at early on through Ruhi, we get the sense that she might be crazy. Moretz, uh, he even kind of establishes how she, you can't deal with her right now and she's too distant and too vague. And you start to think that, well, you know, maybe she is the source of all problems that are going on in this relationship. And then as things start to evolve, you realize her paranoia, which is justified, has really hurt her in a way and, and has really set that 
family on a, a particular course, right? And what I found interesting is there's that powerful moment where she goes to spy on her husband. He, through a series of events, catches her before she can catch him. Using the confined spaces, we get that shot of the elevator where the camera's situated in the elevator and we kind of see the crux of what's about to happen. It's a very violent scene, although you don't actually see, from what I remember, recall, you don't see the full violent act. But after that happens... She's in a cab crying on the way home, and he's going back to his office, talking to his boss, who's witnessed all of this horrific event, and trying to justify his position to his boss. And it was interesting to see these two men discuss how this woman's quote-unquote craziness is hindering his reputation, even though he was the source of pretty much all the problems that occur in this film. And I, I just found the, the progression from initially thinking, well, maybe the wife is a little off, a little crazy to realizing, no, she's pretty much a victim of his arrogance. I thought that worked really well. And I liked how you brought in the other woman and her openness and freeness, because you almost get the sense that that's what Maretza wants. But then at the same time, he's still very much bound by traditions and their expected roles of him being a man. So I was thinking, well, if you're going to be with this other woman, you would not live the quote-unquote happy life because you still want a certain level of control, and that's not what you're going to get with this other woman. Yeah, and that brings my problem with Fireworks Wednesday was at the end, and we do find out, yes, that Mortiza has been having an affair with Semin, that Semin is taking a lot less seriously than Mortiza is. That set the moral stakes and everything that happened beforehand in a much clearer, more straightforward light, because now we see that Moshe does all of her reactions and all of her experience. Yeah, it's having a negative effect on their son, but Mortiza has basically been manipulating the social spaces and the cultural spaces that he occupies, both professionally and as someone in the community, so that he can have his cake and eat it too. He can have his piece of love on the side while staying a good father and then a beleaguered husband. And there's just something about that moment of clarity, that moral curtain being pulled and everything being so apparent, it just felt undeserving of the complexity that came before it. And Farhadi, to his credit, when he made a separation, again, very different movie, and I want to discuss the way information is deployed there and here, but that managed to maintain its complicated morals right up through to the credits. Here, once that revelation is made, it feels like we're just kind of spinning our wheels, especially since Ruhi and her husband-to-be are such a clear contrast in positivity and, and openness compared to Mortiza and Mojda that it disappointed me. And I would be lying if I said there weren't good parts about that reveal. Simon and Bahram's performance there as Simon is a refreshing bit of this is something that we're both going to move on from. I just like the way that throughout the breakup, she's basically smiling and comforting him and saying, we're going to get through this. I don't think we should do this anymore. And he's suddenly desperate to control, like you said, this aspect of her that is what attracted him to her. So that reveal, 
I don't know, it just, it kind of deflated the movie at that point. And while the tension and the atmosphere and the acting and the shots, while they were still fantastic, especially the exhale moment when Mortiza is driving Ruhi around and the fireworks are going off everywhere. And it's a moment that exists almost solely for texture and emotion. And I loved that we got that moment to breathe out and take those revelations in mind. <laughs> but it's also because of that moment that the reveal it disappointed me so i don't know i i wish that there was a way to continue the questionable morals that everyone is employing because then it just seemed like too clear-cut a morality tale once that reveal was out there I can kind of see that, but I mean, I, I think they had to establish it clearly because you still need to keep Ruhi somewhat optimistic despite everything that she has witnessed because at the end of the film, I still got the sense that Ruhi was going to go ahead with her marriage and hopefully she has learned a few things, maybe wishful thinking, but I'd like to believe that she's going to at least try in her marriage not to have it devolve into what she has just witnessed you know for all we know she could be witnessing the future to her own but we don't get enough of the time between her and her husband to be to really get a sense of that so i think if you kept toying with is he fooling around maybe he isn't then it would complicate ruhi's pending nuptials yeah, and it would also deny Simon that great moment where she gets to assert her independence in her own complex cultural situation, being a single woman living alone in Iran. It's that cultural influence, too, that really makes me wish more people, especially here in the States, would give Iranian movies a shot. Because Fireworks Wednesday and A Separation, they're really not too far removed, at least in terms of the overall dramatic structure and the elements in play, from something like Downton Abbey or Gosford Park, or, you know, some kind of class-based British, either older or newer manner style where all the help is trying to keep their heads down and get their jobs done while enjoying what joys that they can, and they get caught in the webs of the machinations of the political and cultural elites above them. That I mean, there's so much parallel that those folks really should be giving movies like Farhadi's a try. I'm glad that you kind of re-steered me because I don't want to deny Simon her agency in that moment when she is confronting Mortiza and is trying to let him down gently. And while the morals themselves are clear, if you place it in the broader cultural context, what Simon is doing is putting herself in danger even by relinquishing the relationship. There's no reason that Mortiza can't do the same thing to Simon that he did with Mojda. Of course, there's a minefield with Mortiza as well, as, as it would be exposing his own infidelity. But it makes what Simon is doing brave in that cultural and, and legal basis there. So, yeah, you, you've turned me around on it. I, it still doesn't sit completely well with me, but Simon is such a good character and, again, is so well played that that moment is crucial to the overall effect of Fireworks Wednesday. 
You know, I liked that you had brought up the Manor style British films, like the Gosford part, because I hadn't thought about that aspect of it until you mentioned it. But it also brought me back to a, a bit of uh, levity early on when Morjadad comes home and finds Ruhi rummaging through her drawers. And Ruhi claims that she's looking for bleach, as if bleach would be in a bedroom drawer or anything. And that would have, I could easily see that being played out in an Altman film. Or as you mentioned, Downton Abbey. So, you know, so yeah, it, it could I could see it working that way as well. I think what I liked about Fireworks Wednesday is that even if you take away the whole patriarchal society, this film could be adapted to like any culture, especially in, in terms of how it looks at marriage, infidelity, and I think it would play just as strongly. I have no doubts. When you were discussing there about possible parallels, if the aggressive aspect was toned up a bit in Krzysztof Kieslowski's The Decalogue, the story that we see in Fireworks Wednesday could easily be in one of the apartments in the complex that is central to the Decalogue. On those not-missing-a-beat Altman-esque tapestry moments, that's another instance where Ruhi completely shines one of my absolute favorite moments was when she was visiting with simon in her apartment i believe it is simon's brother who comes in and he starts turning his harsh glare on ruhi saying you know what is this woman doing here both of them without missing a single beat simon says oh well that's my niece. And Ruhi immediately says, yes, would you like some tea, auntie? That's one of those moments that makes it so clear this could be in an old England or old British style moment because dialogue wise, they both do not miss a moment and they're able to protect each other and move on as naturally as possible. But then you have the great now background detail of Ruhi trying to figure out where the tea is so that she can keep this ruse up. But in the foreground, and man, Farhad, he's such a good director. Because then in the foreground, you've got Simon with her brother. Now that he has that bit of information, it's decided more or less just to let all this go. Let her win the argument, let it play out. While Ruhi is still trying to figure out where the tea is. I loved how throughout everything, even like the opening moments where she's trying to get into the building. And as we all do, if you go to a place and someone's opening the door ahead of you, you try and walk in as well. She gets stopped saying, no, no, you have to wait till you're buzzed in. And sure enough, like a second later, she's officially buzzed in. But I loved how she handled everything that goes on in this film. And as you said, there's times where she's put in a lot of situations where she has no idea what to do, but has to make the best of it. And she does. Sometimes it's comedic. Sometimes it's touching. Just a great protagonist to have. She's just such a great character and such a solid piece of writing. Because there's also that early moment when Ruhi lets herself be drawn into the conflict to a degree, because Mojda, when she comes home, she gives Ruhi a lot of money basically to go away. And then Mojda has her own light bulb moment that she can enlist Ruhi to try and catch Mortiza and Simon in the act. And you have that great shot where initially Simon is on the left third of the frame and uh, Mojda is on the right. Simon just looks like a young adolescent. She's just giggling and whispering to Mojda while they're making plans for Ruhi to go to the salon. The brightness there is really important because we get to see Ruhi's smile against the white backdrop of the intercom system. 
but the mood changes so drastically just with one slight rotation of the camera. When Mojda moves past Ruhi and just the slight rotation of the camera, and it's an entirely different mood. Mojda is now against the chain link fence that separates the inside and the outside of the apartment complex. And all that brightness, that optimism that Ruhi just showed that seemed to be overtaking the screen is now where Mojda was before, struggling basically to stay positive, which, and that just that one shot in that one moment is a beautiful microcosm of what Ruhi is going through throughout Fireworks Wednesday about trying to keep her optimism about marriage when faced with this overwhelming bleak truth that Mojda represents. You know, that's a wonderful point. There's, I don't know, this film is one of those that I really do hope more people check out. The fact that the release schedule is so awkward in the sense that it was done in 2006, but we're only getting it now, that shouldn't be any reason for people not to to seek out this film. And I know that Farhadi's latest one, The Salesman, has been getting rave reviews, and everyone seems to think that that might be the one to upset Tony Erdman at the Oscars this year. So maybe the profile of another one of his films getting critical acclaim will cause people to go back and seek out films like this. I certainly hope so, especially if folks who might otherwise be close-minded to Iranian experiences in general, we can convince them to take a shot on this. But there's one other big topic I wanted to talk about that I've kind of alluded to, and that's the way information is deployed in Fireworks Wednesday versus a separation. I think that shows a fascinating growth for Farhadi as a director and a writer. Fireworks Wednesday, there's a lot of lying going on. On, a lot of lying and misdirection. And the conversations that everyone has, there's almost not a single exchange that goes on without some kind of overt lie being pushed while the truth has to be in these desperate whispers. Because there's that heartbreaking moment when Mojda is listening in the cracks of the wall of her bathroom to try and get some bit of information that will prove she's not crazy, that this is happening. That is a wonderful scene. Yeah, the silence while she's trying to listen and then being caught, even though they're in their private home, having to whisper this to each other. Farhadi, as a director and a writer, utilized information in a completely different way with a separation. In a separation, there is very little dishonesty. There is very little uh, misdirection between people. And in fact, one of the most pivotal emotional moments, well, two of them actually, center on two different women being forced by men to tell the truth and they're kind of manipulated into that situation it's just a cool through line between the two movies to see Farhadi where these movies could have been very similar with fireworks wednesday it doesn't quite have a docudrama approach how a separation did with the direct conversational confrontational style right up front when the married couple is arguing with the judge versus here where you know the, those combustible elements are played out so carefully even though they look so haphazard that this seems much more like a stage play that sense of deception and those quiet whispers 
that to me feels like those asides that you'd get in Shakespeare, where the character turns away from what's going on to share something with the audience. Only in this case, instances like Moshda whispering her fears to her sister. That's just something I, I wanted to bring up. I didn't know if you had any thoughts you'd like to add to that, but these are remarkably different films, even though they both toy with that idea of information and how it can be used as a weapon. It's one that I definitely have to revisit a separation because it's been a while since I last watched it, but I definitely see your point there in terms of how the information is being spread. I, I like that you mentioned that this film could have easily been a stage play. I got that sense as well, but his direction is so good that it's one of those where you watch it and you think, oh man, this would be great on the stage, but it doesn't feel stagey, if that if that makes any sense like you know there's sometimes where you watch a a film especially ones that are based on plays and it does feel like someone just tried to put a camera there and add a few flourishes but it still feels (laughs) very theatrical whereas this one it works as a movie it would work as a play and judging by a separation and now this i love uh, the way how he writes female characters and especially female characters in, in a society that sometimes does not allow the female characters to shine in the ways that we would hope they would i think he did a really great job with this film. To your point about how sometimes movies like this that, that seem like they could be a theatrical production or a stage production instead of in the cinema, I think that's where those exhale moments in Fireworks Wednesday are really important. Because you mentioned earlier the stunning elevator shot where the violence is just off screen, again, as a bystander stares at what's going on and they're separated, but they ultimately have to move on with their life, much as we in the audience do. That kind of manipulation, along with the fireworks that are constantly going off, that's where the cinematic aspects are important. While this, I definitely see working as a stage play, especially with the the few sets and the closeness of the characters and that kind of chamber drama appeal, I'm not so sure I would be able to watch a stage play with fireworks constantly going off on and around the screen. I mean, you're going to have the fire code hazard to begin with, but then you'd also just have the (laughs) verisimilitude of trying to get into the play And I think fireworks would disrupt that audience to stage suspension that is required for good plays to work. I think there is a way to do it. The question would be if you're going to do it in a theatrical setting with the fireworks or at least effects that simulate a firework, you just have to make sure when the fireworks occur, it's not too on the nose. Here, it feels natural because they're just going off constantly. If you're going to do it on the stage, the way I envision it, you probably wouldn't have it going on throughout because you you still got to hear the dialogue, but you don't want to have a character make an interesting point and then a firework go off to be a, aha, (laughs) you That's the one thing you don't want to do, but again, if Farhadi was behind and he was the one who was orchestrating it, I'm sure he'd find a way to make it work. It'd be a cool little experiment that I'd like to see. So, uh, yeah, this was an excellent pick. And that combined with our book recommendations earlier, I would like to urge our listeners to go out, try some Iranian films, some other Iranian filmmakers, or just Middle Eastern in general. Turtles Can Fly is another one that you should check out. I guess just while we're in a suggestion mood, since we already suggested books, any other Middle Eastern-ish movies that you think folks should maybe check out? Jafar Panahani's Taxi, which I think came out last year, was quite good. I'm sure there's others. The amount that I've seen is very limited, so I've seen a few of the Kiristami films. And I'm familiar with Amir Kusturika, who's fantastic. Uh, That also will just kind of give us fuel to maybe make some future discussions as well. 
Oh, yeah. We're, we're definitely going to take our own advice. We'll definitely be touching on more Iranian films and, of course, films from all over. So that'll bring us to an end here today. If you want to get in contact with us, of course, you can leave a comment on the Modern Superior website where we will also be posting links for the short films that we discussed. And since we made two book recommendations, we will also provide some links on where you can acquire those or at least get the information to check out at your local library. Uh, if you want to reach me specifically, you can reach me at Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. And Courtney, what are their other communication options as well as how to reach you? Well, they can also reach us on Twitter at ChangingReelsAC or by email uh, changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. And if you want to reach me personally, I'm on Twitter at SmallMind. And also, we're on iTunes, so if you like what you hear, even if you don't like what you hear, give us a rating. We like the feedback. And also, I, from what I understand, when people rate on iTunes, it helps give the show a little more exposure and gets more people into involved in the discussion. One star, five stars, no star but write a comment. I'm glad to get any feedback whether it's positive or not. So that'll conclude us for the day. Thank you for listening. Next time, we are going to have a nice little animation showcase and a bit of break for format. Look forward to that. And for Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 